So you've come today uh, in the midst of a series. Uh, we begin uh, a few weeks ago taking a look at what are the next steps of our church? Where do we go from here? Where do we grow from here? Where do we move? Uh, since God has called us here, we've um, been committed to reaching the city and being a part of, of God's plan. So what do we begin to do and where do we, we grow next? And we began by taking a look at the need for each one of us to individually connect with the Lord. If we hope to see God do anything great in our church, but also in our community, it begins with each one of us connecting with the Lord, spending time with him in individual worship, spending time with him in his word um, so that he can continue to change and mold and shape our minds and our hearts so that our minds and hearts become his or his mind and heart becomes our mind and heart. And then the next week we looked at uh, the need for us to be devoted. That there are many, many things in the world today that are dragging for our attention, clamoring for our attention. Um, but what the Lord's plan for us is, is to be devoted to the church. Where we must make a part of our lives being connected to the body of believers. But also continually sitting under the teaching and preaching of his word. Then last week we took a look at how inside the church God gives each one of us spiritual gifts. That his plan for us is take the giftedness that he's given us to advance his kingdom uh, outside the church, but also within the church. So we looked last week at, at how do we individually fit into the plan of God and how do we take what God has given us and use it for his glory in this place. And this morning, I want us, as we continue on looking at the next step, I want us to begin um, looking beyond the walls. So, so far, we've basically taken a look at what Scripture teaches us and how it relates to us inside of this place, inside of the church, inside of his local body. And now I want us, for the next couple weeks, is begin looking and moving beyond the walls of the church to how do we take what God has given us and how do we take God's great name and move it from outside of this place so that many can come to know Christ. And so today, our, our topic or our discussion is going to be around knowing our city, the need for us to know the city in which we live. And the text we're going to look at this morning is Acts chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And this is a passage of scripture that comes in the midst of Paul's missionary journeys. As Paul is taking the gospel, who is Paul who's been called by God to be an apostle, um, to take the gospel to the regions and to um, take it not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And we see here, as we pick up this passage, that he is in the city of Athens. And so let's begin looking at Paul's missionary journey as he is looking at the city of Athens. Acts chapter 17 beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Aragopas where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Are you bringing some strange ideas to our ears? And we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. 
Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopas and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who has made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he has made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set forth and at the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by, the right, by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left, with, left the council. A few men began, became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Ergopus, also a woman named Demarius, and, other, and a number of others. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for giving us your word. Father, we thank you that in it we see truths that apply to our lives every single day. And Father, today as we have this opportunity to hear about what you have done through Paul, Father, may you continue to give us the same heart for our own city. Help us to walk in your spirit so that we may be your mouthpiece to a city that needs you so desperately. But Father, help us also to remember in our minds that we are people in need. That it's not just the people outside of these walls that are in need, but it's those of us that are here today that are in need of you. Father, our minds and our hearts are so easily swayed. Our passions are so easily divided. And Father, it is so easy for us to forget that it is you that we desire. It is you that we worship. It is you that we live for. So, Father, help us today to allow our minds to be conformed to your thoughts and our hearts to be shaped to your heart. Draw us closer so that we may be better used by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I love when you come to the Word of God and you see Paul doing some specific things and we we get a chance to, to just try to get a glimpse or insight into the life of godly people. It's always amazing to see what God does through people that are obedient. And I love uh, just this passage as we see Paul's missionary heart. 
So Paul is in this process of taking the gospel to, and, and planting churches. And along the way, God has been directing his path. God has been opening doors for him to walk into specific cities. And God has been shutting the doors. As he's, he has begun to walk into a city, God has said, no, I don't want you to be here. Instead, God has had his hand to direct him different places. And in this account, as we come to this passage of scripture, we see God's hand has been active again in bringing Paul to this specific place in the city called Athens. It is at this time that the gospel is going to come and it's going to begin to infiltrate a new city, a new area. And it just so happens that it's Athens. And so we see that Paul, in what seems like haphazardness to the world, we see God's hand involved in bringing Paul here. For in the beginning of verse 16, Paul is here on his own because God has pulled him away. God is now allowing Paul to be in Athens by himself as he is waiting for his friends and his partners to come there as well. We see that as Paul is here now, as he's waiting, we don't see that Paul is just passively waiting. He doesn't just come into the city and he's like, well, my team's not here. I'm all on my own, so I'm just going to sit down and wait. No, we see Paul continuing to carry out the mission that God has given him. And what's amazing to me is Paul was a man that lived every single day of his life on mission. He didn't take a vacation from the mission of God. He continued to live out the mission of God wherever God had taken him. And so now he finds himself sitting and waiting in the city of Athens. And what does Paul do? Well, we see Paul doing what Paul normally does. Where does Paul continually go as he begins to walk into a new city? Well, every time Paul goes into a new city, the first place that he goes is to the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue where he finds people that were trying to follow the Lord. And we also see God-fearing Gentiles that are there trying to earnestly find and follow God. And so he goes, and every time he goes into the synagogue, he meets people there and he begins to reason with them. He begins to tell them about how the law of the Old Testament is fulfilled through this man named Jesus. And he begins to tell them about grace and how you cannot be saved with your works and how you can't hold the law, but the law is there to show you your need for someone that can come and be your sacrifice. And so Paul goes into the synagogue and continues to meet with those that are religious, those that are of his own. But then we see in this case, he not only goes to the synagogue, but he also goes to a different place. He goes directly to the marketplace He goes to the place where the common people are, people that are just going about their daily lives, living their lives in the city. Paul immediately goes to where the people are and he begins to engage in them. But it's amazing to me that as he comes to this city, he learns some things about this city. And I love what Paul does is he begins to see the city. He walks into the city, and as he's waiting there, he sees the city through spiritual eyes. Not just through human eyes, he sees them through spiritual eyes. And as he begins to perceive the city, or begin to see the city, what do we see here that he notices about the city? He notices that the city was full of idols. Now there were people in the city of Athens that were running around, living their lives Trying to worship idols. Now it's not as though some of them actually had idols. That they were actually visible statues of things that they worship. But we also need to understand that an idol is anything. That we seek to find fulfillment. And we seek to find purpose in that is not the Lord. 
Anything that is not of the Lord that we seem to find pleasure in, we seem to find our passions in, we seem to find our purpose in, anything of those that are not of the Lord becomes an idol. And so the city that Paul walks into is a city that's full of idols. The people of this city were not worshiping the true and the living God. They were worshiping and being carried about in empty activities that were promising life, but really brought about death. What I love about this and other um, versions of this passage, we see that the spirit is active in this uh, opening of Paul's eyes. It is the spirit that, that helps Paul to see the city through God's eyes. We also see that not only was he able to see the idols, but that his heart was moved. It says here that he was distressed. Now in this idea of distress, there's a compilation of a bunch of different emotions that Paul is feeling. First, Paul is beginning to see that people are worshiping idols. And so that causes him to have distress. It causes him to have a little bit of anger. For he realizes that there are people giving glory to things that are not the Lord's. And so he has a little bit of anger. But then we also see alongside with that distress comes a heart and a feeling of compassion. For Paul was able to see that these people had a desire to worship. For God has placed a desire to worship in their hearts. And they were worshiping something that wasn't going to lead to life. And so he had compassion on them. But we also see that Paul had in his heart and his desire to bring about change. So Paul took notice of this city. Paul began to understand the city and began to become a student of the city. And these are some things that we know about the city of Athens that Paul was um, living in. Athens, at that time, was the capital of intellectual. It was the place where people went to find greater thought or deeper thought. If you wanted to go and you wanted to think about things or if you wanted to pontificate the meaning and purpose of life, you went to Athens. Athens was a place where they were growing in intellect, where they were having a place where they could go and they could use their creativeness to make beautiful paintings and beautiful um, sculptures. It was the place where people went to find deeper meaning and deeper purpose. Much of the same way as today in our modern world, people go to Vienna. If you go to Vienna, you go to Vienna because you want to see great architecture. You want to go to Vienna because you want to see beautiful paintings and you want to see beautiful art and you want to see a city that is just different. Or people go today to cities like Paris. Paris is another city like Athens was. People go to Paris because they want to see things. They want to experience beauty. They want to experience art. People go to Rome today for the very same reason. And even a little bit closer to home, people today go to New York. New York is probably a place in our own country that's very much like Athens was. If you want to know what's going on, if you want to know what's event, what the trends that are going to in, impact uh, Wilmington, you can go to New York. For soon, what takes place in New York finds its way, many of the things that take place in New York, finds its way down to, to Wilmington. But at this time, Athens had lost some of, its some of its luster. It was no longer a place where the great population was there, but it was still was a place of great cultural influence. It was also the intellectual, intellectual capital, but it was also a place where there was great idolatry. 
It was here in Athens that some of the greatest minds of philosophy had come. It is here that, that Socrates lived. It was here that Plato was um, doing some of greatest of, of Plato's work. It is here that Aristotle did some of his work. It is here that Epicurus did some of his work. And it is here that Zeno also lived and taught. So Paul is walking into a city that is steeped in history of people and thought that are countercultural to what Jesus taught and believed. And so he comes into this city and he sees the city that used to be glorious, but now is a city of, of pluralistic thought and pluralistic ideas and humanistic, uh, humanistic um, passions reign. So here he takes notice of all of this. So what does he do? As he's taking notice and he's, he's moved by the Spirit, he begins to engage. He doesn't just sit back and just wait. He begins to engage. And we see here he begins by going to those that he knew. He goes to the synagogues where there were Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Then he goes into the marketplace. He goes where the common person is, where there were people that were living, going about their day-to-day lives. He begins to be among them. And he begins to converse with them. He's not going down there with the Bible in his hand, beating people over the head. No, he goes to the marketplace to begin to be around the people. And as he begins to engage the people there, he begins to hear and begins to listen to what they believe and what they think. And he realizes that there are two main philosophies and two main thoughts of faith or or trains of faith that people were living in. First, there was the Epicurean and then there was the Stoic. Basically, these are two secular schools of thought that help people begin to make sense about the life that they're living that are completely devoid of biblical revelation. So the Stoics and the Epicureans were two groups of people, two main uh, trains of thought that ruled the day. Now they were also competing thoughts that were living in this community together, but they were thoughts that had been so thought out that people had thought about them so deeply that it seemed to make sense and everything that they derived meaning from life was completely apart from biblical revelation. You see, the Epicureans believed that pleasure is what ruled the day. That the purpose of life is to be free from pain. The purpose of life is to be free from passion, from superstition, from anxiety. So the purpose of their life, the end of their life was good, was the highest good. So the highest good was to live your life so that you didn't hurt anyone, you didn't offend anyone, you didn't cause anyone to feel an untension or tension or a rub. But the purpose of life was just to live in peace and harmony. Now, the Stoics also believed that their purpose in life was to live a life that was thought in rationality, that there was no God, but that there was this, the forces of good and evil that were working together um, or working against each other, and that man was to somehow overcome those forces of good and evil by being good himself. And so we live in a world today that's, that, that's different from the Epicureans and the Stoics. But, but we live in a world today where we can see that there are many, many different trains of thought that are, are competing in our modern philosophies. Now what I've noticed about talking with a lot of people today is that, that many people um, today, they live their lives and their philosophies are found in what I call the buffet style of thought. 
It's almost as though the world we live in, we have information that just bombards us over and over and over again. You can't go anywhere without having new information. And so what we do in life is we kind of, we, we begin our life and we get this tray in front of us and we begin to walk down the, the row of the buffet that's before us. Now, how many of you guys have ever been to a restaurant called Duff's? Anyone ever been to a restaurant called Duff's? You've been to Duff's? Really? Awesome. Anyone else been to, you've been to Duff's? Now, what I love about Duff's, Duff's is like a smorgasbord, kind of like Old Country Buffet or Golden Corral, but it's different in the fact that when you go to Duff's, you go in there and you get your tray, you get your plate, and you walk into this turnstile, and you don't even have to move down the line. Instead, what they do at Duff's is the food's on a carousel in front of you, so you go into the stall, and as the food comes in front of you, you just grab it and put it on your plate, so it's like the lazy man's I don't know how you could get any lazier than that kind of buffet unless like you sat down at the table and the table moved in front of you. I I don't know. But Duff's was a place that we used to go growing up. Now, Duff's, to me, is the way I see many, many people deriving their faith or their philosophies today. They walk into life with their tray in hand, and as things come along, they're like, oh, I like a little bit of that. I like a little bit of the idea that that life is, there's this God out there that loves me. I like the God that loves me. And then the God that comes by that says that there's a God that will, um, that will punish us for the bad things that we do. That's like turnip greens. And so we let that pass by. But then we like, well, there's a God out there that there's multiple gods. Well, I like that because I want God to be loving. I want God to be kind. I want God to be good. So they put that on their plate. And so we see that in the world, there are so many different philosophies and so many ideas. And so they just pass in front of them. And so at the end of the day, they come to the table and they sit down with what their faith or their philosophy is. And it's a conglomeration of a bunch of different faiths. Have you guys met people like that? Where you begin to talk to people and you begin to just hear, so what do you believe? What do you think? So when someone dies, what what do you think about what happens to them when they die? And you begin to hear things like reincarnation or you hear that they immediately go on to this place where they're in this celestial palace or this great paradise. And it doesn't matter what they did. As long as they were a good person, they go on into life. And so you hear all of these things and it almost seems as though they have a conglomeration of a bunch of different faiths, but no one true faith. That's kind of the world we live in today. That's my experience in the world that I live in today. Is that people don't have, you don't have hard and fast people that are completely, um, completely Buddhist. Or you don't have people that are completely Muslim. You don't have a lot of people that are completely this or completely that. But even if they were to claim and they were to say to themselves, I'm a Muslim. You can see even in their Muslim thought, there are thoughts from other religions and other faiths that make up their faith. And here's what's even scarier. So I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people that claim the Christian faith. That say, I'm a Christian. And then you begin to talk about different things about their life and their faith. And you see that there are things that they believe and things that they've added to their faith plate that are completely devoid of Christ. Completely devoid of God. Completely devoid of what Christ teaches us. And so we see we live in, in that world today. And so in much the same way as Paul is encountering these difficulties and these changes and these challenges, we need to realize that we live in a world today that's much the same. 
And as we look here in this passage again, we see Paul as he's beginning to talk, he's beginning to communicate with people in the marketplace where the common person is. We see these people, these Epicureans and these Stoics, they begin to hear what Paul is saying and to their ears and to their mind, it begins, they begin to think he's talking gibberish. But what Paul is teaching is so different from what they've known that they begin, God in his greatness begins to cause them to question. So God gives them an opportunity to share. God gives Paul an opportunity to share his faith. And so what does he do? Well, he begins with a, with a heart for the people. He begins with open eyes. Then he begins to encounter them or engage them where they're at. And then what does God do? God gives him an opportunity to deliver the gospel. That's the way God works. That's what God does in this passage. That's what God does today. God took the insight that he gave Paul and allowed Paul to begin to connect it to where people were. And we see this where he says, I can see that you are religious. I can see that you are religious. Men of Athens, I see in every way that you are religious. And then we go again to see what Paul had done. Paul begins, he says, I have walked around. I have seen, I've perceived, I've begun to understand. And I have understood and saw that you have many, many objects of worship. But then God gives him the beautiful intersection where he says, and he understands the idols that these people have. They were so afraid of offending all of the different gods. They didn't want to offend anyone. So what they did is they had set up a statue or a place where people could worship an unknown God. So Paul sees this as an opportunity to bring the gospel to a place where these people could live and could understand. And then we begin to see, Paul begins to beautifully unpack the gospel for these people. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything is the Lord of heaven and of earth. And this God does not live in a temple that is built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything, but he himself gives all men life, breath, and everything else. For from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. And then he goes again and makes another connection to where it hits them right where they're at. He even uses some of the, the own truth that they have uncovered. Some of the own poets from the Athenian world come and they've said, for we are his offspring. So Paul makes that connection. He makes that, that cultural connection. And he says, some of your own poets have said this. We are his offspring. But then he goes on to talk about our responsibility, the responsibility of man. Therefore, since we are God's offering, offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's not an image made by man. He's not something that we can create in our hands. And then he goes on to verse 30, verse 30 to say, In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has set a day in which he will judge the world with all of his justice by, by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof to this and to all men by raising Christ from the dead. It's interesting to me 
that Paul takes the time to carefully think through the Spirit of God how to craft the gospel in a way that will communicate to the people he's seeking to reach. And he communicates the gospel so eloquently. There is this God. God has created us. To him we owe our being. We owe all of that we are to this God. And this God is not something that you can control. This God is something that controls you. This God is the God that sets the standard. But we are his created. And so therefore we must worship this God. And when we don't worship this God, when we worship ourselves, we worship other things, we sin. And when we sin, there is judgment. But then there was this one, Jesus, who came, who was fully God and fully man. He came to live a perfect life so that men could have their sins paid for on a cross. And then there's this opportunity for the resurrection. So Paul communicates this gospel in a way. But what's also amazing to me is that the result of him sharing and delivering the gospel was not overwhelming like we see in the beginning of the book of Acts. It wasn't like Pentecost where thousands of people came to know Christ. But we see only a few men begin to follow. But it's the few men that begin to follow that makes Paul's work worth it. We don't live our lives engaging a city with the whole purpose of saying, our purpose here is validated by how many people come. Our purpose is not validated by how big this church grows or how many people we baptize. Our purpose is validated in the fact that we have communicated the gospel in a way that people can hear and understand and have an opportunity to accept it or reject it. So I wanted for us, just for a few moments together, as we look at the way Paul did it, as Paul got to know his city, where he saw his city through the eyes of a missionary, where he began to ask the questions, who is in the city? Who is, who is already here? What do these people that are here already do? What is it that they believe? What are their hopes? What are their fears? What are their dreams? What has made the city what it is today? And what is God doing in the city? Those are some of the questions that Paul began to ask himself. And what I want us to do, because God has placed us in this city, is I want us to revisit these questions again for ourselves. So for the next few moments, we're going to do things a little bit different. I'm going to stop talking as much, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to some of these questions. For some of us work in the city, some of us live in the city, some of us come to the city to find our fellowship, some of us come to the city to find our entertainment, but we have some experience in this city. And I want us just for a moment together to ask some of these questions and answer some of these questions. For I believe that since we've been here, God has given us the opportunity to perceive certain things. And some of you, as I've had the opportunity to talk with you, you perceive the city in very different ways. But I think together, if we can collectively just hear what God has shown you while you've been in the city, I believe we can get a bigger picture of who is here and what God is calling us to do. So first, I want to begin by asking the question, around the, the framing of the question around the people that are here in the city. So who is here in the city? 
So you see that there's a lot. I mean, there, is the, there are those that are really, really blessed and wealthy. But then you also see within our city, there are those that are in extreme poverty. And they're um, everything in between. Uh, you see that. And, and what's also interesting is this area, this part of town, there's this growing sense of um, being able to express yourself artistically. We have the art loop. We have um, places where uh, people can just gather together like here and, and play music on Mondays. And so you see uh, just all of that artisticness that, that's coming back to the city. We also see in, in our city too, there's this um, movement towards revitalization. Even in this area, just on this street, there's revitalization that's taking place. That's good. So that's the people, and I'm sure there's many, many more things that we can, we can talk about. But what about our history? What do you know about the history of the city of Wilmington? Because we know that, that we are today as a part of our past. And so today we, we come here and our people that are part of, not just in and of ourselves, apart from ourselves, but we are here as a part of our past. So what things about our past do we know? So we can, we can learn a lot from the people. We can learn a lot through the history. And we can see and we can look back and we can say with spiritual eyes, what has God been up to in the city? And we can see that God has been up to a lot. God has been working in this city greatly, especially in this area. As we you know, just claim uh, or, or be able to identify what God has done, God has done something greatly in this part of the city through government and through um, personal investors. God has begun to reclaim and redeem this part of the city. And it's no, no coincidence that God has placed us here right on this street that has been a thoroughfare for the community and has so much history. There is so, so much has taken place on this street um, that has been glorifying to God, but also not glorifying to God, but that God calls us to now to be a part of, to bring about change. So now the next question is, if we know the people, we kind of understand a little bit about the history. What are some of the, the idols? What are some of the idols? What are people looking to, to find meaning in our community? What are they replacing their, their desire to worship God with? Now, I want us to see that all those things we've said are good. Those are all good. But that when we move them from the place of where they're supposed to be to the place of prominence in our life, they become bad. It's not bad to have money. It's not bad to have recreation. It's not bad to have entertainment. It's not bad to understand power. But when all those things are, are moved and, and distorted, then they, when they fall out of the way that God has made them, then they become idols and things that um, are detestable to the Lord. So we've talked about the people, history, idols. Now I want us to talk about the need. What, what are the needs of our city? What are the needs of the people that, that live here? What are our needs? The city just needs the church. I mean, they need Christ, but the visible representation of that is the church. And, and I think that um, what, I, what I see too is that there are so many people filling their lives. We're all filling our lives with activity, but sometimes we leave out the purpose of activity. We can, we can run from the time we wake up to the time we put our head on the pillow and do so much, but never really accomplish anything. You guys ever feel like that in the daytime? Like you've just done so much, but you never accomplished a lot? So I think there's a, a need for connecting purpose with the things that we're doing. Well, that's good. Well, so we've had a little bit of an opportunity to, to look at our city. 
And I want to encourage you this week um, to spend time this week specifically in our city. Spend time just bringing the family or by yourself, walking the streets of our city, praying for our city, asking God to just help you see our city with, with new eyes. Because it's when we see that we begin to be prompted to move. You know, right now, um, if we were to watch a video right now of the horrendous need of water in, in Africa, that there are kids that are dying right now in Africa because they don't have clean enough water sustained life. And if I were to show you a visible picture of these children's faces, and I were to tell you the story of little Ahmad who died yesterday because he didn't have enough water, and if we gave 70 cents a day, Ahmad would have lived, you guys would be prompted to do something about it, right? Why? Because you saw a need, you understood it, and you were prompted to do something. Now, we can't be people that are part of this community that aren't part of the community, You can't know the need unless you're here in the city, a part of that. So I'm going to encourage you. I want to encourage you to come and be a part of the life of the city and to spend time in the city. Come to the coffee shop. If you just don't do anything else, then come to the coffee shop. If you work in the city, find a way to to get out in the city too during your time. Not just stay in your cubicle, but just come and be a part of the city. Pray for the city. Ask God to open your eyes to see the city through his eyes. And that takes time. You can't do it from the suburbs. You can't do it from your home. You gotta be here. So be in the city. Then as you're asking God to open your eyes, ask God to break your heart for the city. Ask God to just to take your heart and to break it into a billion pieces. And, and if he's already done that, ask God to do it again. Ask God to do it again because what happens is that God breaks our heart for the city. We get compelled to do something about it and then life begins to take over and we become complacent and then what begins to happen to that broken heart that was in pieces, it begins to be formed and put back together. And then it forgets to feel. It forgets to do stuff. So ask God to continue to break our hearts for the city. So what I want us to do as we end our time, before we even begin or begin to talk about, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, is engaging our city and delivering the gospel to our city. That's where we're going next week. But I want us to take the time to ask God to once again open our eyes and break our hearts. Open our eyes to see the city so that we can see the idols and so that our hearts can be broken for those that are running headlong to a Christless eternity so that we may be motivated to do something about that. So what I'm going to do to end our time today is I'm going to spend time closing us in, or having a time of prayer. And then I'm going to ask you just to take a few moments where you're at. Just bow your head and just ask, your, ask God to simply do those two things. God, break my heart and open my eyes. And then we'll begin to see what God does. And then we'll close our time in song.